invite you to take your copies of the scriptures and turn with me to the gospel according to John, John chapter 3, this morning in verses 9 through 15, John 3, verses 9 through 15. Psalm 119 tells us that God's word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Pray that it's that for us this morning to guide us on the way as we seek to live our life for Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for God's word as I read John 3 verses 9 through 15. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. There's a question I thought of this week. might sound a little odd to our ears, but it's this question. Does Jesus preach the gospel? Does he tell of the good news? We are those who proclaim the gospel, preach the gospel, know the power of the gospel, depend upon the gospel, need the gospel, ground our lives upon the gospel, and center all that we are and all that we do on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The importance of the gospel should be seen in everything that we do. If it's so important to us, Do we ever stop and think, was it important to Jesus? Did he preach the gospel? And if he did, where did he preach it? What places would you go to in the Bible and say, look, here is Jesus preaching the gospel? If you have a sneaking suspicion that this might be a trick question, it's not. Does Jesus preach the gospel? Yes. And I believe we can point to these verses in John 3 as evidence that Jesus preached the gospel. And remember, this section of Scripture comes right on the heels of what it says at the end of chapter 2, that Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to certain people because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about 
man because he himself knew what was in man. And now we see pictures, we see vignettes, if you will, of what is in man. It's like we walk with John, who wrote this book, through an art gallery. And on the walls are hanging different depictions of human nature. We see these pictures that he shows us of different people. It says, look, look, look what's in man. These paintings are realism. They are reality. They are the way things truly are in the human heart. What are we looking at as we look at all of these various pictures? So, uh, for example, we see a picture of Nicodemus. In a little while, we'll see a picture of a Samaritan woman. A little while later, we'll see an official's, uh, official and his dying son. But what do we see as we look in all of these various pictures of people's lives? What are we looking at? We're looking in a mirror. These paintings, as it were, show us what is in us. And what it is that's in all of mankind, from the least of us to the greatest, or perhaps the way that John does it, from the greatest to the least. It starts with this man named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee and a ruler of Israel. He is part of the elite in society, a holy man. He is seen as prominent in the eyes of the people. What is in man? It can be a very religious heart that is in man. A very moral heart. A heart that many people might be envious of or want to emulate in their own life. Yet still, it was an unbelieving heart. Jesus, go ahead and preach the gospel to the Samaritan woman at the well. She made a mess of her life. Jesus, go ahead and preach the gospel to the royal official, that politician whose son is on his deathbed. But where does Jesus start? With the worst of the worst? Not externally, not according to society, but one who was very religious, yet completely separated from God. Who needs the gospel? The religious need the gospel. These who do not think that they are sick, those who look like they have it all together, those who would be offended if you were ever to suggest that they needed to change, that they needed to be saved, that they needed to be made alive. Here's the way one author Octavius Winslow describes these kind of people. The vast number whose Christian profession was avowed, so that is they avowed to be Christians, whose religious character was recognized, whose theological creed was sound, whose conversation was pious, whose sacred observances were rigid, whose benevolence was applauded, whose zeal was admired, who prided themselves upon their elegant preacher and favorite religious author, but who yet were living in the world and as the world 
and to the world. That is who Jesus is preaching the gospel to. So first, this morning, would we let Jesus preach the gospel to us? Would you pray that you would have ears to hear Jesus preach the gospel to you and even preach the gospel to you again today? Pray for the gospel preaching of Christ to pierce your own soul. Second, may we see Nicodemus as a case study. See, what Christ is giving us here is an example. This is how you share the gospel with nominal Christians. I use that word Christian loosely. Those who think that they are saved but are not. May no one here fall into that category, but that's why we first need to hear the gospel as preached by Jesus. Maybe we would think this a rather odd interaction. Aren't there other people that need to hear the gospel? Others who need to be saved? But maybe Jesus highlights something here that is still needed. I wonder what you think about missionaries and what missionaries do. Missionaries go out into all the world. Missionaries go overseas. They go to Africa. They go to Asia. They go to South America. How scandalous might it be in our minds to think, send missionaries and preach the gospel to people who attend church. Who needs the gospel? People who go to church. Nominal people who believe that they are saved, but they are not. Too many who think, well, as long as I go to church, I'm good. Those people can sit in the pews or chairs, sing songs, listen to sermons, bow their heads in prayer. But those who have never experienced the new birth are not born again, born from above, and are separated from Christ, even though they might look righteous to other people. Nicodemus looked righteous, looked like he was concerned about the things of God, and looked like he knew a lot as he had it all together. There was someone that you were going to bet on that would get into heaven, Nicodemus would be your man. The problem with Nicodemus was not a problem necessarily of knowledge, but a problem of belief. And at this time, Jesus is exposing that he does not, as of yet, have saving faith in Jesus Christ. We are continuing in Christ's conversation with Nicodemus. You notice we kind of jumped in here in the middle. Last week we dealt with the first eight verses, but now this second part of this conversation with Nicodemus. And there's a trajectory in this conversation. If you'll look back there in chapter 3, Nicodemus begins by saying a lot. And each time that he says something, he says a little bit less 
until finally we get to verse 9, and it's just these five words, just this one simple question. Why is he speaking more at the beginning, and then as he goes along, why is he speaking less? Nicodemus is being reduced to silence. He is being humbled, and his once prestigious resume is showing itself not to be that impressive. The last time we hear from Nicodemus in this chapter and in this interaction is with the question, how can these things be? Jesus has just described the new birth. He has told them what it means to be born again, how one can see and enter the kingdom of God. I think maybe a better translation of this verse, verse 9, how can these things be, maybe would be, how can this happen? Jesus, what you are saying about the new birth seems impossible. It's outrageous. How can this happen? Jesus confronts Nicodemus on his status and authority. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You don't know, Nicodemus? Read this statement carefully. Look here. In fact, you can put your finger underneath it. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you what? The teacher of Israel. This contrasts to what Nicodemus had said earlier. Now go back up to verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are what? A teacher. You, are, you might be one among many teachers. We know that you are a teacher, a teacher that has come from God. Jesus, you are just a teacher. What does Jesus call Nicodemus? You are the teacher. You have been given official capacity and an official status. Jesus recognized Nicodemus' status and shows him some respect. You are the teacher of Israel, yet you are ignorant, ignorant of what the Old Testament teaches, ignorant that there is a new birth and the need for people to be changed from the inside out by being given a new heart and a new spirit. And so Jesus instructs Nicodemus, sit up, Nicodemus, pay attention, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, know this for certain. Take it to the bank, Nicodemus. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. Notice how Jesus apes or mimics Nicodemus's initial statement. Remember that? Verse 2, Rabbi, we know. Here's what we know, Jesus. We're certain about this. We know that you are a teacher. Come from God. But now, what does Jesus say? Let me tell you what we know. We know something more certain. We know something more sure. Nicodemus, do you think you have such certainty in your knowledge because you've seen these great signs? We know something better, something that is not enamored with the spectacular or what is entertaining, something that pierces to the heart and core of what all people need. The problem with Nicodemus was not a lack of comprehension per se. It wasn't that he couldn't grasp the words that were being spoken to him or get the gist of the witness that is being born. It was that he didn't receive it. 
He didn't accept it. He wouldn't believe it. It did not penetrate his heart, at least not yet. What has John already told us in chapter 1? But to all who did receive him. Remember, this is Nicodemus' problem, right? But you, Nicodemus, do not receive our testimony. What John has already said, but to all who did receive him, that is, who did receive Christ, who what? Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What was Nicodemus' problem? Why was he missing it? Why wasn't it getting through? It was because Nicodemus was not looking where Nicodemus needed to look. Sometimes one of my children comes to me and they've lost something, they've misplaced something. They ask me if I've seen it. And I say, well, where was the last place you had it? Where have you looked for it? And then I give them some places to look. Only for them oftentimes to come back empty-handed. Until I go and look where I had told them to look. And I find it and I say, I thought I told you to look here. Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus where he is supposed to look. And more importantly, the one to whom he is supposed to look. So this is our outline for this morning. Where are we supposed to look? Just as where Nicodemus is supposed to look. Well, first we're to look upon, this is in your outline, your bulletin if it's helpful. Look upon the pre-existent son. Look upon the pre-existent Son. So before anything was created, pre, before anything existed, there was the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Where does Jesus go with Nicodemus? He goes back to Jesus' origin. Where does Jesus come from? But he works his way back along the conversation that they've already had. Jesus says, I've told you earthly things. So what are these earthly things? Well, it's what Jesus has already said. These are not merely worldly things or physical things, but these are things that take place on the earth. Jesus had told Nicodemus about the new birth or what it means to be born again. The new birth is a spiritual thing, but a spiritual thing that takes place on the earth. One could test such things and somewhat verify them. Remember, you see the effects of the wind. You see the effects of the Spirit. There is undeniable change and transformation that takes place in a person's life who is born again. But Nicodemus would not believe these things. He would not believe even the spiritual workings of God upon the earth. How would he be able to believe if Jesus told him about the workings of God in heaven? Heavenly things are those things that take place in heaven. Nicodemus, it's as if Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you can't even believe the elementary principles. You are 
missing the absolute basics. You're missing what you need to see so that you can enter the kingdom of God. How can I go on and tell you greater truths, heavenly truths? (laughs) Nicodemus is like those who perhaps are in the church. They love to quibble and squabble over the finer points of doctrine. They like to ask questions without ever really wanting an answer. There is much that they think that they have been taught that they can move on from. Don't worry, we've already been taught that. New birth, being born again, the gospel, we've moved on past those things without ever seeing that in missing these, they've missed everything. Maybe, maybe, Nicodemus, you would believe heavenly things if you could ascend up into heaven, right? Heaven here is the abode of God. It's where God dwells. Maybe that's the answer, Nicodemus. Ascend up to heaven, be able to verify heavenly things, But what's the problem? Nicodemus can't ascend into heaven. In fact, you go back to the Old Testament, there are only a few people who ascended to heaven. You maybe think of Moses, you maybe think of Elijah. There's a difference, though, here between those men and what Jesus says. Who is it that can ascend into heaven? Who is it that can ascend into glory, ascend to the very throne of God? The only one, he says, is the one who has descended from heaven, and that one is no one other than the Son of Man. This title, Son of Man, comes from Daniel 7. There the Son of Man appears before the Ancient of Days, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that will not be destroyed, and a people who should serve Him forever. So Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, for Himself. But do not be deceived by these words, thinking that this title emphasizes his humanity. Jesus is actually emphasizing and declaring his deity. What is Jesus saying? I don't need to go up to make my home with God. My home was with God before I descended to earth, before the incarnation, before the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the pre-existent Word, the pre-existent Son who dwelt in perfect and eternal harmony and fellowship with God the Father. Nicodemus, I am more than one who has come from God. I am God. He condescended from heaven. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nicodemus, you think you know God? But you are ignorant of God. Because you haven't accepted Christ's witness to himself. As the pre-existent son, Jesus is the revealer of God. If you want to know God, you have to know 
the Son of Man, who is God. Jesus, through this verse and the following verses, gives the trajectory of his life. He descended from heaven in humiliation, only then to ascend to heaven in exaltation and glory. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Look upon the preexistent Son, but also, number two, look upon the sin-bearing sacrifice. Look upon the sin-bearing sacrifice. Jesus now takes Nicodemus back to Sunday school. Takes them all the way back to the book of Numbers and tells of an account that happened to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. And he says that event points and typifies the work of redemption that Jesus has come into the world to accomplish. Just to jog our memories, perhaps for a moment, let us remember what happens in Numbers 21. We've already read it today. The Israelites were complaining about the provision of God as they wandered in the wilderness. Remember when we were in Egypt, we had all the food we wanted, we sat by the meat pots. Now we have this worthless food that God's given us. Remember what God had given them? Manna. If you remember what manna was like, it was sweet like honey. It was like God had given them Krispy Kreme donuts. And they said, this is the worthless food you've given to us to eat. They thought maybe it would have been better if we stayed in Egypt. Think of this, a complaint against God's provision for his people. And so God, in essence, says to his people, you want Egypt? I'll give you Egypt. They worshipped serpents in Egypt. So I will send fiery serpents among you as judgment for your sin against me. It brought the people a conviction of their sin and repentance. They say, we've sinned. They asked Moses, Moses, ask the Lord, pray to the Lord to take away the serpents. But the Lord doesn't do that. Instead, he orders Moses to make a fiery bronze or a fiery serpent of bronze and to set it on a pole. And when people were bitten by the snakes, they were to look at the bronze serpent on the pole, and all who looked at the bronze serpent would live. And now Jesus says, that event points to me. The Son of Man must be lifted up, just like that bronze serpent was lifted up on that pole. What was the bronze serpent? Why was that lifted up? Why was that chosen? Of all the things that you could choose to look at, The people were to look at this symbol of their judgment. Couldn't they look at something more pleasant, something that would take their mind off of the serpent, something that would help them forget the judgment that they were under because of their sin? But God, in his kindness, provides a bronze snake that symbolizes bearing the curse in the place of the snake-bitten Israelites who trust in God. 
When they looked in faith to God's provision of healing, they were healed. Now, Jesus is the one who bears the curse of sin in the place of people who deserve death because of their sin against God. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He, that is God the Father, made Him, that's God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's Jesus bearing our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Or go over more to Galatians 3.13. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What is Jesus confronting Nicodemus with and so confronting us with? Nicodemus, you are sick. You have the venom of asps coursing through your veins, and it is killing you. You are a serpent bitten, sin enslaved, son of Adam, and you are under the judgment and punishment of God because you have spurned his provision, opting to live in Egypt rather than under his loving care. You are a traitor, but look to Jesus, the sin-bearing sacrifice. Look to him who would take Your sin upon himself who would die on the cross like the serpent that is lifted up. So the Son of Man lifted up and the only remedy for you is to look on him in faith. This isn't for your physical life like it was for the Israelites. This is for your eternal life. Look upon the sin-bearing sacrifice. Finally, look upon the exalted Savior. Look upon the exalted Savior. Jesus uses the words lifted up as a double meaning. So what does it mean for the Son of Man to be lifted up? Well, where is he lifted up? He's lifted up on the cross, right? That is where he is headed. That is where and when he will be lifted up. But there is another meaning. Turn back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 verse 1. I'm going to wait because it's so important. I want you to see it. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, what? High and lifted up. There he is. He's exalted. He's seated on his throne in the temple, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. Glory. 
Now Isaiah 52. Verse 13. If you remember Isaiah at all, the book of Isaiah, maybe you remember Isaiah 53. What is Isaiah 53 about? The suffering servant? The servant who would die? The man of sorrows? The one upon whom the Lord has laid our iniquity on? Now, before that, before Isaiah 53... Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant. So we're talking about the servant here, the servant who in a few verses later is going to be the suffering servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and what? Lifted up and shall be what? Exalted. Now, lifted up means Crucified on the cross and lifted up means exalted. Now, put those two meanings together. And what would appear to be a contrast is actually shown to be beautifully harmonious. It is through Christ being lifted up on the cross where we would think that he is humiliated, but it's there where he is exalted. It is then and there that he is being glorified. Christ exalted when he is lifted up on the cross. And it must happen this way because Jesus, as as the Son of Man, is fulfilling God's counsel of salvation. This is how salvation happens. The incarnate Son of Man is the suffering servant who's dying on a cross, makes him the exalted Son of Man. This is the path to ascending back into heaven. It's through the cross. There is no other path to glory. There is no other path to exaltation. It's through the cross and the cross alone in order to save sinners. And notice this difference. Whereas God told Moses and the Israelites, look on the serpent. Look on the serpent and live. And what were they doing? They were looking at this symbol and sign of judgment, but they were to be trusting in the Lord in faith that he would heal them. Now what is happening? Look, look at the Son of Man lifted up. This is the Lord himself. Who will give you eternal life. Believe in him. He is the one who gives the eternal life that he possesses. This is the answer to Nicodemus' question. How can this happen? can happen through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. What or who are you looking upon? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never looked upon Christ. You've never trusted Him. You've never put your faith in Him. Today is the day. Put your faith in Him. Cast yourself upon Him. Maybe you're like Nicodemus, very righteous 
Maybe people would say you have a religious character. Maybe they would say that your theology is sound. Maybe they say that your conversations sound pious. Maybe they say that you observe all of the religious observances. Maybe they applaud your benevolence. Maybe they admire your zeal. Maybe you're always talking about your favorite preacher or your favorite teacher, but maybe you've never looked on Jesus Christ. Today, look upon Him. Trust in Him. Put your faith in Him as the one who bore your sin to forgive you of your sin and make you at peace with God. Or maybe today you're one who has looked upon Christ, you have trusted Christ, but your gaze of Him has drifted. Maybe something else has distracted you this week. Maybe you need to refocus. Maybe you need to go back to these verses. Hear Jesus preach the gospel again to you. Look upon him again as your life, as your love, as your everything, as your all in all. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus has preached the gospel to us again today. Let us look again at the Son of Man who was lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, all who looked to him, all who looked to it lived. So now, we look to Jesus, the one who bore our sin, the one who forgives us, the one who extinguished your wrath in our place so that we might be forgiven and have life. We look to Him in faith. We trust in Him. We need Him. And may we be captivated by Him. Today, tomorrow, forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.